0: So last week we were starting to move into the third uh, arena of these factors, which is the samadhi uh, grouping of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And I talked about how in some ways right effort is the bridge between our daily life practice and our meditative practice. Because on a general level, right effort is needed in... Uh, uh, re- supports every one of the path factors as all of you were pointing to in your sharings just a, a few minutes ago. And right effort also has a specific meaning in terms of meditation as the effort to release unskillful mind states and to cultivate skillful mind states. So now we come even more directly into the meditative qualities of right mindfulness and right concentration. And I'd like to share how Gil frames this because I think he gives such a clear overview of how the Noble Eightfold Path progresses. He says, When the steps of the Eightfold Path are practiced sequentially from right view through to right concentration, the journey of practice goes inward to the most intimate part of our being. Right view and right intention provide the broad understanding for walking the path. Right speech, right action, and right livelihood bring the practice home to our behavior in the world. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration take the practice into the heart, to our innermost capacity to experience peace and ease. So as the path progresses then, it moves deeper and deeper into the heart and closer and closer to the goal of ease and peace and ultimately to the complete freedom of nibbana, of awakening. And this goal is a little bit different from what more ordinary mainstream approaches to mindfulness aim at. And I just want to make that point because what makes right mindfulness right is the goal that we're aiming it towards. So these days it seems like the word mindfulness is popping up everywhere. And uh, we hear things, that we can see mindfulness being promoted as a way to improve your work productivity, as a way to enhance your cooking skills. As a way to, uh, improve your stock market investing and as a way to, uh, improve your tango dancing. I'm not kidding. I've seen mindfulness used in the service of all of these. Even like a, there was a course called Tango with the Buddha. Oh. <laughs> Zensuality registered trademark so, you know, there's a lot of different ways that mindfulness is being used and and promoted. And it's not to say that mindfulness can and does reduce our anxiety, does relieve our stress, maybe does improve our cooking skills, maybe it does improve our tango dancing. And these are, in the Buddha's teachings, these are byproducts of mindfulness. They're not the goal in and of itself. So again, uh, Gil Fransdell, he says, right mindfulness is more than simply being mindful. In the Buddha's ancient instructions, sati, the word often rendered into English as mindfulness, refers to the presence of mind needed for a strong, balanced awareness. Mindfulness practice occurs when this presence of mind is combined with clear comprehension, ardency, and a willingness to put aside preoccupation with the things of the world. And when this mindfulness practice is directed towards the four foundations of mindfulness, then it is known as right mindfulness. Traditionally, right mindfulness involves attention to four progressively more refined and intimate areas of our lives. These four, usually called the four foundations of mindfulness, are the body, feeling tone, mental states, and mental processes. So I'm guessing most of you are familiar with the four foundations of mindfulness. Anybody not aware of that set of teachings? Okay, So the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, is really the core text for the whole of the insight, so-called tradition that we're involved in here. And so I'd like to give just an overview of what these four foundations are. And at the same time, I'm a little bit wary of giving you information overload, particularly in the form of numbered lists, so I just want to name, you know, we have the four this, the five that, the six, the seven, the eight, and you know, we can get a little bit boggled, or a lot boggled, and or disconnected. Oh, it's so dry, you know, it sounds like a shopping list. Half a loaf of sourdough, a liter of milk, a can of tomatoes, it's just like, it doesn't really land. But I was, I've said earlier that these lists these numerical lists were used in the teachings because they were originally transmitted orally. And so they're a way of helping these frameworks come into our minds. And I was thinking uh, just last week that it's a little bit like these teachings are condensed into these very pithy core numbered lists. It's a little bit like... um Camping food. You know, when we go camping and we get those dehydrated sachets of food where they've had all the juice sucked out of them, it makes them very light and very portable. We can take them anywhere, but they're not very edible just as they are. We have to have add water and heat them to sort of reconstitute them, to bring them back to life and to make them edible and nourishing. And in some ways, I feel like these numbered lists are like camping food. They've been dehydrated. We have to bring them into our own lives and explore them and unpack them in order to extract the nutrition. So this Satipatthana Sutta, the four foundations of mindfulness, is yet another set of categories of experience, lists that we can um, pay attention to. And as Gil alluded, it's a progressive set of teachings. It starts with relatively simple aspects of our lives to pay attention to and then gradually becomes more and more complex and sophisticated and challenging. So the first foundation of mindfulness in some ways is the simplest. It's mindfulness of the body. So this obviously is mindfulness of breathing, We have the four postures of sitting, standing, walking, lying down. These are referred to in the first foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of physical sensations through the whole body. So we may start by paying attention to the breath, but then we open up to notice sensations throughout the body of warmth or coolness or tingling or heaviness or lightness, pushing, pulling, contracting, and so on. So those of you who've done classical Mahasi-style practice, you'll recognize that noting of our experience in more and more refined detail. And this is done with this um, quality that I've been referring to as bare awareness. So simply being with our experience as non-reactively as possible. And a few weeks ago, we did that dyad exercise where I invited you to name what was happening at any of the six sense doors without adding any story, any assessment, any judgment, but just to name, seeing, whatever, hearing, whatever, and so on. So this is training in bare awareness. And again, you know, that can sound quite simple. Um, We can perhaps do it when we're face-to-face with another person and given these very simple instructions. But in everyday life, what usually happens is because each of these uh, contacts at any of the six sense doors come automatically with a quality known as feeling tone or vedana. These six, these contacts are automatically registered as either pleasant or as unpleasant or as neutral. And this is happening so automatically that we don't even register it until we have compounded into some kind of response of liking, not liking, not knowing, wanting, resisting, and so on. So the Buddha actually pointed to this quality of feeling tone, this knowing of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, as the second foundation of mindfulness. And on one level, it sounds very simple, but it is so significant in building the whole chain reaction of our reactivity that it's a very significant foundation to pay attention to. So as I was uh, talking a few weeks ago about the so-called three root poisons of greed and hatred and delusion, you might recognize this connection between pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, greed, hatred and delusion. Because when an experience registers as pleasant and we don't notice that, what's the default response? Greed wanting, moving towards, enhancing, prolonging, holding on, clinging and so on. And of course the opposite when something is unpleasant, default response. Rejection, aversion, resistance, get it away from me, don't like it. And then the third one, if an experience is neutral, we tend to not even register it. We tune out, space out, disconnect and so on. So unless they're seen, these three um, feeling tones are driving uh, most of, actually, maybe even everything that we think and say and do throughout the day. And it's actually a little bit humbling, even humiliating, to see. You know, I I used to have this um, perception that I was a, a sophisticated human being. And then when I started to explore Vedana or feeling tone, I realized I'm just an amoeba. I blob towards what I like and I blob away from what I don't like and I space out when something's neutral. And if we really pay attention, we'll see that that is going on every nanosecond of every day. So bringing awareness to this is very helpful. You may be familiar with that famous quote by Viktor Frankl, the uh, psychiatrist and Auschwitz survivor who wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And this quote he says, Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So, unless we can really tune into that space between the feeling tone, and the habitual reaction, we really are just locked in autopilot. We don't have that space to to make a choice. So this training in seeing the second foundation of mindfulness is really a powerful way of opening up space and freedom. Vedana also is a kind of bridge between the first foundation, which is mindfulness of the body, and the third foundation, which is mindfulness of the mind. So in this third foundation, we're invited to look at mind states, at mental activities, thoughts, emotions, and moods, basically all of our mental activity. And I think it's worth uh, really emphasizing that mindfulness of the mind is a very powerful part of our insight practice. Because unfortunately, when we go on retreat, the initial instructions are to begin training by bringing awareness to the breath. And often we're instructed if the mind moves away, come back to the breath. Now this is done in the service of stabilizing the attention and deepening concentration so that we can then see more clearly. But what often happens is people then get the wrong impression that real meditation is just about being with the breath. And if my mind goes anywhere else or if I'm thinking or, or whatever, I'm not meditating. But with insight practice, we can bring awareness to our mental activity and have that be the object of our awareness. So in this foundation, the Buddha asked us to notice our mind states, particularly And mind mind states are more than just passing thoughts or even emotions. They can be a combination of emotions and moods that really color our minds and form a sort of filter that we experience the world through. So, you know, there could be aversion or appreciation. There could be boredom or interest, agitation or calm, engagement or disconnection, reactivity or equanimity. You know, there are all these different mind states that are going on and you might notice even right now just take a moment uh, there are some mind states just kind of burbling away in the background just to know because these if they're not seen really can impact everything that we think that we say and we do and in this foundation the Buddha names uh, just a. I don't know, half a dozen or so different mind states, really is the representative sample. And he starts with variations of greed, hatred, and delusion. So the instructions are to notice, is lust or greed present or not? Is anger present or not? Is delusion present or not? Is the mind concentrated? Is it distracted? So he goes through these basic categories. And I think it's worth pointing out that he says, he doesn't say, notice when you are greedy, notice when you are angry, notice when you are deluded. It's completely impersonal. Is there lust or greed in the mind or not? He also says, notice the or not. Notice when these states are absent. And again, as I keep reinforcing, because of this negativity bias, we tend to be much more aware of when there's greed, hatred, and delusion and not aware in this moment there's no greed. There's no aversion. There's no delusion. There's presence and clarity. So developing, as I was saying earlier, this whole spectrum, being able to see equally and impartially and impersonally whatever is happening in the mind. So I think I made the point uh, last week or a few weeks ago that with these first three foundations of mindfulness, the relationship to our experience is the same. We're developing this non-reactive, bare awareness. Just know your experience exactly as it is. But when we get to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of Dhammas, The emphasis changes, and here we're invited to actually become involved with our experience, to not be so passive, but as I was saying last time, to notice, for example, if the hindrances are present, we don't just go, yep, angry, angry, knowing anger, knowing anger. It's like, oh, anger has arisen. Okay, what's the antidote? It's noticing if the awakening factors are present, how can I strengthen and develop them? So those two, the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening, are some of these lists that occur in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And again, this fourth foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, is usually left untranslated because this word dhammas is another of those Pali words that, Encompasses a huge range of different meanings. When it's spelled with a capital D, it usually refers to, it's, uh, it can refer to phenomena, categories of experience. So this fourth foundation includes both lists of the Buddha's teachings and categories of how we experience things. So for example, the five hindrances, the seven factors of awakening. It also includes the five aggregates of clinging, the six sense bases that we were exploring, and the four noble truths. So lists within lists within lists, and some of these lists also contain some elements that are included elsewhere, and so the whole thing starts to become like this fractal geometry of wherever you start, it begins to open out and to basically encompass the whole of the path. So to try and keep it simple, um, even if you just focus on the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening, as we were doing last week, that is a very powerful place to start. And in fact, according to Bhikkhu Analyo in the earliest versions of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness text, this fourth foundation originally only included the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening Those other ones appear to have been added in later. So this fourth foundation is kind of a compendium of the Buddha's teachings. And it's inviting us now to begin to understand our experience in terms of the teachings. So it's bringing in the wisdom component very directly. So I notice, for example, anger. I'm aware of it. I know its characteristics. And at some point... Oh, this is a hindrance. This is getting in the way of clear seeing. This is not supportive of the awakening factors. Okay, how do I help it release? What are the antidotes that I can bring to help it um, be abandoned? Abandoned. So just to make the point again that that fourth foundation, we're not no longer just being passively with our experience, we're bringing the wisdom lens to see is this useful or not? How can I help incline the mind in the direction of awakening factors and move out of the hindrances? So in order to do that, we need to have a pretty stable base of... um, calm, tranquility, concentration. And this is the last of the eight path factors. Samadhi, usually translated as right concentration. And more and more teachers are making the point that concentration in some ways is quite an unfortunate uh, translation of the word samadhi because in English it sounds like furrowed brow kind of fixation on an object. And people talk about striving to stay focused. And that tightening of the mind is actually exactly what gets in the way of really deepening the the calm, the stability. So some perhaps more useful translations of samadhi are unification of mind or absorption, indistractability, unscattered attention, all of these words are pointing to the way the mind in samadhi becomes just naturally absorbed in the meditation object. The attention doesn't move anywhere, it becomes completely stable and unwavering. And when the mind is unwavering like that, it's able to penetrate the teachings on a completely different level. Just coming back to this right effort, if we're, if our part of our energy is taken up with, you know, the hindrances and there's that agitation in the mind, it's hard to get the deep clarity that comes from concentration, which then allows clear seeing. So sometimes I use the analogy of a jar of muddy pond water. If we think of the mind as being like this jar of muddy pond water, if we keep shaking it, the water just stays cloudy. But if we just put it to one side and let it settle very naturally and organically, the sediment sinks and we get clear water. The mind becomes clear and then the deeper insights can arise. So again, just how Gil describes describes the, the role and the function of right concentration. He says... The preceding seven factors all provide important support for our ability to develop a stable, focused, bright, and concentrated mind. With the development of right concentration, the Eightfold Path can then culminate in insight and liberation. Right concentration prepares the mind for deep understanding and profound letting go. This occurs when the mind is, quote, ready, soft, free from hindrances, joyful, and bright. Recognizing the expansive and unhindered quality of the mind is the task of the third foundation of mindfulness. And then using this concentrated mind for wisdom is the task of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. So concentration, how do we actually practice it? Concentration differs from mindfulness practice in that we usually pick one simple object, one single object to pay attention to, and then we just try to keep the mind connected with it, gently bringing it back whenever we realize that the mind has wandered away. And the object that we pay attention to is less important than how we're paying attention to it. So for example, we can use mindfulness of breathing to develop concentration by just coming back to that simple knowing of the breath coming in and the breath going out. In some traditions, samadhi is developed through reciting a mantra or staring at a candle flame or a colored disc. And within the insight tradition that we're part of, it's usually practiced by cultivating cultivating the four Brahma practices of metta or kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And I think most of you are familiar with at least metta as a practice. Is that correct? Anybody never done any metta practice? Right. So with metta practice, we keep returning our attention to the phrases, to the feeling in the body, to the person we're offering the phrases to and that repeatedly coming back to this one focus is what helps stable, stabilize the mind. So again, just to make the point, um, in Gill's words, because he just expresses things so clearly, he says, concentration in meditation is not a laser-like focus originating in the control tower of the mind. Rather, we cultivate it by physically and mentally settling our attention onto the object of focus with real intimacy. I like that uh, phrase of intimacy. It's about becoming more and more intimate with the object. He says, it requires letting go of distracting thoughts instead of forcibly pushing them away. To do this, it helps to calm whatever mental energy is involved in any thinking. Establishing a firm but soft intentness to then stay focused is also helpful. Balancing this intentness with letting go into the object of concentration is useful. It is best not to concentrate the mind with brute mental force. Instead, we use our discernment to discover how to stay focused in a committed, relaxed way we can develop wisdom about the hindrances to concentration and other forces that distract us. Instead of resorting to unhelpful tactics like aversion or resistance in the face of distractions, we can learn more effective strategies for overcoming them, leading to more tranquility and unification. It is also useful to explore how to enjoy the practice. Not only can concentration practice bring joy, it can also bring tranquility and peace, sometimes to a greater degree than is usually available in daily life. Even small amounts of meditative joy and peace are useful for encouraging greater concentration. So it's worth highlighting this role of joy because as you may remember last week, joy is one of the awakening factors and it supports uh, the deepening of concentration. So I was appreciating in our sharing earlier that many of you did refer to this sense of growing joy or ease. So samadhi is a way of becoming more intimate with our experience in a relaxed and enjoyable way. And this concentration can be developed to uh, greater and greater degrees along a whole spectrum. So it... Even in insight practice, in Vipassana, we're developing some level of concentration through continuity of mindfulness, that repeated coming back to being present. That itself can develop quite deep states of concentration. We can also choose to develop samadhi in a more deliberate, intentional way through the cultivation uh, into the jhana practice, And jhanas are are four distinct and increasingly deep states of concentration that are extremely powerful. But wherever we are practicing concentration along the spectrum, it is always beneficial for our insight practice. And it is always done in the service of insight practice. So... um, jhana practitioners such as Shaila Catherine who spent many years deepening jhanas on re- formal retreat she makes the point that what makes right concentration right is not the depth of the concentration but the purpose that it's used for so it's used in the service of insight so That's probably, possibly more than enough um, information to be taking in in one hit. I would like to leave time for us to explore this together. I'm making the assumption that you all have already some degree of familiarity with mindfulness. So in our group practice, I'd like to focus more on exploring concentration together. So thank you for your attention. And let's take a few minutes just to stretch and bring some relief to the body before we continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.